We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Two guests on the show today. Michael Phillips, our good friend from the Richmond Times-Dispatch, will join us. Why? Uh, There is news from Ashburn. Ron Rivera just finished up with the media following uh, practice today. Curtis Samuel was held out of practice and Ron had uh, an update on Curtis Samuel, and the news isn't great. Uh, I'll get to that shortly, and then Michael Phillips will jump on with me to discuss it in more detail. Following Michael, Jimmy Patsos will be our guest. Jimmy grew up in Boston, grew up a Celtics fan. We will talk about the passing of legend Bill Russell. Uh, When I heard that news about Russell yesterday, the first person I thought of was Coach Thompson. You know, having had the pleasure of being in the same building and in the same studio, uh, you know, we did our show, Tommy and I did our show for seven and a half years right before Coach did his show with Doc and Al Koken and Doc and B. Mitch. And so uh, we've told you uh, about many of the conversations either in the bullpen or as they were walking into the studio and we were walking out that we got to have with Coach Thompson over the years. And his passion and his admiration for Bill Russell, I mean, we heard so many Russell stories over the years. And he had Russell on his show many times. And I called up JT3 um, or reached out to JT3, and he was on the radio show with me this morning sharing some of those memories that he has from his father about Bill Russell playing with Russell um, up in Boston. And so JT3 was on the radio show with me this morning, and you can hear that at the team980.com or on the Odyssey app. He was on in hour three of the show. Also had Scott Turner on the show. I think it's the first time I've had Scott Turner on the podcast or on the radio show. He was great. Uh, 20 to 25 minutes with the offensive coordinator. You can find that uh, on the team980.com or the Odyssey app. That was in hour two. Uh, Anyway, before I get to the Curtis Samuel uh, story um, from training camp uh, today, 
Just want to remind everybody, if you don't mind, rate us and review us, especially uh, on Apple and Spotify. Apple gives you a chance to rate uh, the show up to five stars. That's great when you can do that. And write a quick one to two sentence review. This review from BT1102. Love the show. As a fellow Bethesda native, I went to every game at RFK. Uh, I enjoy Kevin's knowledge and take on all Redskins information. I live in South Carolina. Hard to find any local insight better on the team. Go Barons. Um, That would be, I'm sure, a reference to the Bethesda Chevy Chase High School uh, Barons. Uh, I did not go to BCC as a Bethesda native. I went to Walt Whitman High School um, in Bethesda. BCC was a rival of ours. Churchill was probably the biggest rival, but BCC was a big rival. Um, but I had many friends that went to BCC. Great high school. Legendary Montgomery County uh, High School. Um, not Whitman, uh, but a great high school nonetheless. Thank you for the review, BT1102. Before I get to this Curtis Samuel thing, the other big piece of NFL news this morning is the six-game suspension of Deshaun Watson, uh, a suspension handed down by the league's disciplinary officer, Sue Robinson. It's not like it used to be where Roger Goodell plays judge, jury, and executioner on all player uh, suspensions. Uh, This is now, per the CBA, something that this independent disciplinary officer, Sue Robinson, investigates. She hands down the suspension. Both sides, the NFLPA and the NFL, do have the right to appeal. The NFLPA has already said, and it should have been a tell because they said it last night that they're not going to appeal the suspension. The NFL has three days to appeal the suspension. We'll see if they do. Look, netting it out, it seems light. It seems very light. I thought it would be at least eight games, maybe an entire season, but I thought at least eight games. Six games seems light. So I'm going to read to you from Jake Trotter's story on ESPN. Jake Trotter is the John Kime equivalent for the Cleveland Browns. And he wrote uh, about Sue Robinson's suspension of Watson and her 15-page report and what it says in the report. First of all, uh, it's a six-game suspension without pay, but he's not going to be fined. Um, He's getting suspended for violating the league's personal conduct policy uh, following accusations, as we know, of sexual misconduct um, and and more uh, associated with all of those massage therapy sessions, uh, he says in air quotes. But from Jake Trotter's story, he writes, Robinson's comprehensive 15-page conclusion stated, though Watson violated the personal conduct policy, there wasn't enough evidence to justify an indefinite suspension, meaning a much longer one. In her report, Robinson wrote that, quote, the NFL carried its burden to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that Mr. Watson engaged in sexual assault, as defined by the NFL, against the four therapists identified in the report. Mr. Watson violated this policy in this regard, closed quote. Then in Trotter's story, 
uh, he goes on to detail how she arrived at six games. And without reading through all of it, I'll net it out. She started using examples of cases since 2015 of players that had violated the personal conduct policy and were suspended. Darius Geis, Johnny Manziel, um, for uh, cases involving domestic violence, got six games. Greg Hardy, four games. Uh, the, the the longest suspension for something uh, involving uh, sexual harassment, domestic violence, etc. Jerron Jones got ten games in 2021, but that but there was a criminal plea and multiple incidents of domestic violence. There were also multiple incidents of domestic violence with Kareem Hunt and Mark Walton, both of whom got eight game suspensions. There was more though. Robinson also ruled that Watson has to limit his massage therapy to club-directed sessions and club-approved massage therapists for the rest of his career. Or, and that's a mandate that's being mandated as a condition of his reinstatement. So no more Instagram massages, no more sketchy strip mall massages. It's going to have to be club-approved massage therapists. Now, there was no mention in this story as to what the punishment would be if, you know, he decides to go the Instagram route again. But they made it very clear. Uh, They know he's got a problem. Uh, They know that while he wasn't criminally charged or indicted, that this was a major problem. And I read this uh, tweet just moments ago from Andrew Brandt, who's been on the show uh, several times, uh, former team president of the Packers, teaches at Villanova now. He tweets about a lot of the business stuff and the legal stuff in the NFL. Um, And he's read through this report as well. And he tweeted out, Watson, according to Judge Robinson, one, intended to cause contact with his penis, two, did so for a sexual purpose, and three, knew such contact was unwanted. There was another um, tweet uh, that Andrew Brandt uh, put out that I wanted um, to read uh, because it kind of hit home for me on another part of this story. Um, The tweet read, Watson used money from the Texans and Browns to settle lawsuits brought on by 24 and counting women he sought out for massage. And he puts massage in quotes. And now he'll suffer only $350,000 in financial losses on a $230 million contract for his actions. Brandt finishes the tweet by writing, there's something well icky about all of this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Texans paid him last year, and he didn't play. Keep in mind, he couldn't play because of the investigation that was ongoing, but he didn't want to play before any of this was found out, and he recouped every cent. Think about this. It actually, in many ways, worked out for him last year. Not that any part of this story has worked out for him, I understand, Um, but it certainly hasn't impacted him financially. He got every cent, even though he didn't want to play for the Texans and wanted to be traded. He got every cent of his money from Houston last year. And the Browns gave him a backloaded contract with a base salary of a million dollars this year so that he would avoid losing a lot of money if he got suspended, if and when he got suspended. You know, it's like they just gave him every single financial thing that he desired.
out of this. All the while, you know, all of these women coming forward with legitimate complaints because he settled them civilly. He hasn't, you know, protested uh, any of those civil lawsuits saying, I'm not giving you a dime because I'm totally innocent. And, uh, and ultimately, like the Texans and Browns, by paying him every cent he was owed last year and by the Browns backloading the contract, they essentially helped him um, offset uh, the cost of uh, these lawsuits and, you know, by not having to pay out a major part of his salary this year and by earning all of the money last year. Anyway, uh, so the Curtis Samuel situation. Curtis Samuel... Uh, was limited once again at training camp today. He was limited last week. Ron Rivera was asked about it, and he talked about it today after the uh, training camp practice this morning in Ashburn. He said two things, and they're lengthy. I will read them. The real good thing with it, more so than anything else, is this is all about the plan. We came out the first couple of days, got a chance to really look at him. I know he and Al Bellamy is talking about the head trainer, talked a little bit, and there was some concern as far as just his overall football conditioning and shape. You can train all you want. You can condition all you want. But coming back and doing some of the things that we wanted to do, we've got to be smart with it. Al and his guys have a plan. So with Curtis, we're going to stick with the plan. Closed quote. Conditioning? And shape, here's the second part of it. I think more so than anything else, it was about seeing where he was when we got him back those first couple of days. And just listening to him and all honesty, him talking about his hamstrings and lower back being sore and tight. One of the things that we wanted to do is we wanted to make sure that we brought him back the right way. So they've put a plan together. They've sat down. They went over it with Curtis yesterday, and they're implementing it now. And what will happen is you'll see there will be ramp-ups and then They'll slope back down. Then there will be more ramp-ups. There will be times when he's interacting, getting some of the 11-on-11 work and stuff like that. But it's all part of the plan. The ultimate goal is really the regular season more than it is anything else. This has nothing to do with last year's groin injury or anything like that. This is just about the plan for him specifically. Close quote. So, hamstrings, sore back. These are new. Football conditioning and shape. This is new. Curtis Samuel missing practice, not new. Curtis Samuel being limited, not new. A concern over Curtis Samuel, not new. For year two, this is really troubling. Now, it could all get worked out here, and he said some good things about how he felt the other day, but they are, and I talked about this on the podcast over the weekend, they're being cautious And if they're being cautious, why are they being cautious? Well, he told you today. He told you that his overall football conditioning and shape was an issue, and he's got some hamstring and lower back issues now. (laughs) Oh, my God. This is heading towards being one of the worst free agent signings in franchise history, and there are a lot to choose from. I'm not panicking because I don't panic when it comes to this team anymore um, as a fan. I don't feel that emotion anymore, but – Um, This is clearly a concern. You've got to wonder why in God's name uh, Curtis Samuel is not healthy and ready to go for a second consecutive year. You know, you had the groin issue from last year. You know, he had surgery. Um, He said he felt great. 
Uh, and, you know, that was months ago. And then the other day he said he felt great. But clearly they are proceeding with caution and clearly there are compelling reasons for doing that. Uh, yeah, uh, hopefully we see Curtis Samuel on the field um, by the opener. But like with Chase Young, I would not hold my breath. Michael Phillips was there today. He heard what Ron Rivera said. We'll find out the tone of what he said. Um, more on this right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The presenting sponsor of this segment of the podcast is MyBookie. Go to MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag and use my promo code KevinDC and they'll double your first deposit all the way up to 1000 bucks. Now, to get that credit, you've got to use my promo code, KevinDC. And if there's something already written in the promo code, just erase it and write KevinDC. And they'll match dollar for dollar your first deposit all the way up to 1000 bucks. That's a lot of free cash to bet with at MyBookie. Uh, but use my promo code, KevinDC, at MyBookie.com or MyBookie.ag. Uh, Washington still holding as a four-point favorite at my bookie over Jacksonville in the opener. They are a two-point favorite over Detroit in week two. Uh, you can bet on that right now if you want at my bookie. All right, joining us now from training camp where they have just finished a training camp practice and Ron Rivera has just spoken uh, is our friend Michael Phillips from the Richmond Times-Dispatch. You can follow him on Twitter at MichaelPRTD. Michael, we talked about the Curtis Samuel uh, story and news uh, in the opening segment. Um, I want you to describe to everybody what the difference is between Curtis Samuel missing time now and Ron Rivera's reaction to it from what the situation was a year ago. Well, you know, last year, Ron really went to bat for Curtis Samuel. There was a lot of, you know, you remember that was the angriest he got at a press conference last year was Curtis Samuel um, surgery questions. It was, guys, 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 you know, don't don't put that crap on the table. Um, so, so, so Ron Rivera... And they have a pass together. They played in Carolina, obviously. Um, but today we got a little different side. And, and Ron Rivera said that Curtis Samuel is on a plan uh, because they had some concerns about his overall football conditioning. Uh, after he did the first couple workouts, there was some hamstring and back tightness reported by Curtis Samuel. Um, certainly a, a little different perspective than we've gotten, that it has nothing to do with the groin injury um, and, and that this is something that, uh, you know, that they're going to keep an eye on the regular season, work him towards. So not, not a full throwing under the bus, Kevin, but certainly enough to 
raise some Curtis Samuel alarm bells for sure. So are you saying that it's not what it was last year, that seems clear, but that Ron Rivera is a little bit more frustrated this particular go-round because it may have to do with the kind of shape that Curtis Samuel is in? You know, I, I continue to think this is ultimately just going to be a Deshaun Jackson-style situation where, look, he, when he's out there, he's great. You cannot count on him to give you 17 games a year, and the best you can do is just manage it and get what you get. And, and you know, maybe Ron's coming to peace with that now, too. Um, but, but certainly a, a, an alarming phrase there, overall football conditioning. Yeah. Um, when you hear football conditioning, you know, unless he's coming off a serious injury where – yeah, I know. I mean, when he was limited last week, I thought, well, this is strange. Okay, why are they being so cautionary? And I, I think we, we found out to, today. I, I, don't, I, I don't really get it, but, you know, we're headed towards, if you're right, if it's – look, if, if he gives you what Deshaun Jackson gave you in terms of, you know, some electrifying, uh, you know, production at times – but not always available. Right now, that would seem like something most people would take uh, versus basically not getting anything from them. It would turn out to be one of the worst free agent signings in franchise history if that's the case, and we've got a lot to choose from. Do we think the number is cursed? Because number 10 was previously worn by Paul Richardson, I might remind <laughs> you, uh, who, who was basically the exact same story. Yeah. Did Pryor wear it before that, or was it Jackson before that? Well, Whoa, yeah. Um, no, Pryor wore 11. Pryor, Pryor wore, uh, I think Pryor wore 11. I think. And, ja- yeah. and Jackson was 11 or 10. What am I, I, 10 in Philly, 11 here, right? He always, wore, he always wore one in practices, too. So that always threw me. Like he had a different number in practice than he did in the game. You, it, you know, with Curtis Samuel, the bottom line is, you know, like – it's now a it's now a thing. It's a second year in a row, and it's an unrelated thing. It, it's becoming a thing, unfortunately. Yeah. By the way, um, you wrote about another uh, number ten uh, in your story from <laughs> over the weekend, which we'll get to because it's been ten years since number ten's first uh, training camp uh, and his first season, and maybe the last season in which there was truly a ton of passion um, for this team. We're talking to Michael Phillips, so. All right, the headline is Curtis Samuel and the concern over him, and we're you know back to where we were we were last year, with one exception, and that is the coach seems legitimately concerned and bothered by it. Let's move to Chase Young, um, because to me, out of the first couple of days of camp, that was your big story. You know that the uh, 2020 Rookie of the Year who tore his ACL in early November last year. Um, you know, it was, uh, you know, we all had a sense that there was a chance he could miss some time. But Ron Rivera, in that back and forth with you and with John Kime on Friday. You had said the other day that Chase was going to be out a little while. Yep. And it's, I think most of us said probably into the season yep. for a little while. Is that more what you're expecting? And what is the, what do you think the timetable there, with him as far as the season goes? Well, I don't think there's a fair timetable, you know, other than he'll, he'll probably start off on pup into the regular season, active pup. Um, just, it's, it's, unfor- it's unfortunate. Um, but it, it was a serious, you know, injury, obviously, with, with surgery. And um, he's doing everything he's supposed to. He's, uh, he's on time as far as uh, where the doctors think he should be. 
And, um, you know, as he, as he gets better and better, we can update you. But right now, this is, he, he's right where he needs to be. And I know they changed the rules. So he starts the season on PUP. Is that four games now? Is that correct? No, it, I, think it's, I think it's a few more. Um, I believe it's six. But, okay. uh, but we'll see how it all goes. was very interesting because you knew, it sounded to me like you knew what the PUP rule was. Uh, for the regular season four games, and he didn't necessarily. Uh, and he said six, and yeah, probably, and then backtracked and said no, only one game. I want what your reaction was to you know Ron Rivera and you and Kime on Friday and your guess as to how many games Chase Young misses in the regular season. Yeah, I tend to think the first answer is often, you know, the the more correct answer in those sorts of scenarios. I, you know, for for and for Ron to to say right now there's no chase in week one means it's not close at all. And so for him to say publish, so yes, publish rule is for Ron said six at the podium. Um, that makes it more concerning to me if Ron was saying pup and the number is six instead of four. Um, you know, to potentially boot him for six games out of the gate. Um, but you know, you got other ways you can do it. You can put them on the 53, you can take them to IR. Um, you know, you can keep them inactive, which you can start the season. Um, but I, it, I read that as a lack of optimism. And, and I do think the thing we need to point out is it was not a run of the mill ACL. It was a more severe injury with a more severe surgery. I don't think there's any sort of indications that there's any, oh, he's been lax in his recovery, hasn't been working at it or anything like that. Right. I think this is just a, a complex injury that he's coming back from, but uh, certainly six is the number in my mind right now coming out of that exchange. Yeah, uh, and I think what it does, um, and I want your thoughts on this, I think it completely, look, we've got time and things can change between now and September 11th. But if you're right, and you know that first answer uh, is somewhat reflective of what they're really thinking, and it turns out that he misses a significant part of the early uh, portion of the schedule, um, you know, call it multiple games, three, four, five, whatever it is, games. Uh, I think we have to change our expectations on the kind of season that Chase Young, um, you know, can have, and our reaction to it. What do you think? I think his first dominant season now would be 23 coming back, certainly coming off of this. Um, you look at the contract situation, they'll pick up the fifth year this offseason. Uh, you would think that there wouldn't be any kind of real extension talks coming off of a, a regular, you know, a, a regular season where he, you know, plays a few weeks as good, but not dominant, whatever. To me, the key benchmark, and I say this in all sincerity after what happened last year, if this team, gets rolling early if this team is four and two and he comes back in week seven they have to not be worse with him than they were without him uh that that is the standard for chase young in coming back and that's got nothing to do with his ability to dominate or get 20 sacks and that's got everything to do with what happened last year where this was a more cohesive team and unit and had better chemistry and seemed to be playing better once he left than when he was there and you know ron hinted at that was it the Mike Silver interview with the bye week? Kind of, kind of hinting at that. Uh, Ron talked to me at the Super Bowl. We put those quotes out there. Where, you know, he said he felt like Chase was trying to be somebody he wasn't last year. Um, so to me, that's the new Chase Young bar. When he comes back, does he make the defense better or, or at least not worse? And I think you say that's your building block, and then you go into 2023 off of that. That's my new recalibration. <laughs> wow. I mean, of course, that's because. 
Look, the, the last year, you know, your quotes that you got from him at the Super Bowl, what they implied, you know, during the early portion of the season, adhering to the, you know, the, the scheme, you know, playing within the scheme, being disciplined, being mature. We all found out. I mean, I think some of us, you know, had a hunch as to what he was referring to when it was going on. But we all know that, you know, Chase Young was a part of that, um, you know, discussion. And what's interesting, and I was talking to Ben about it this morning on the radio show, and that is if he were coming back fully healthy, you know, recovered from the injury well, you know, in time, had a full camp or mostly most of the camp, played in preseason games, was ready to go for the regular season opener, there would be a lot of pressure on him to be a lot different than he was in those first eight games last year. And now I don't think that the pressure can be on him because of what we've been discussing. And because of it, which, you know, if you just take it out a step or two further, not that you know, um, it's, it's maybe appropriate to do it on August 1st, but the, if there was ever a chance that there would have been a debate over a fifth-year option, I'm not suggesting that there would have been. But if there was any chance that that debate could have happened, it would have been him playing an entire season after at least some of an offseason and playing the way he did in the first eight games last year. Now that's not in play. So this year like you said the the next time we see Chase Young p- potentially as the Chase Young uh at of, of 2020 as the Chase Young we thought we were getting with the number 2 overall pick might be 2023 yeah and, and there is no debate on the fifth year option i don't think anymore obviously that'll happen now but it, it it does in a way complicate your montez sweat situation too if he comes out there and dominates this year you know do you have room for allen you know, you've already got the big Allen contract. You're presuming you need to at least save for the Chase contract. You know, if Montez Sweat comes out there and has a great year, which he's capable of, it certainly makes for a very interesting offseason. All right, give me one or two other Michael Phillips observations so far through the four days of training camp. Yeah, I'm impressed with the secondary. I really am. I think they're in a much better spot than they were last year. They seem to be communicating well. They seem to be in the correct spot more often than not. There haven't been a lot of plays where they're yelling at each other trying to figure out where to get to. Um, I wish they would finish a couple more of these interceptions. That's all right. We can't be greedy. They, they have been in the right spot more often than not, um, and I've been very pleased with their, with their work. I, I would say flip side of that coin, Carson Wentz is who we thought he was in terms of overthrowing receivers. He has been overthrowing guys pretty regularly since he got out here. I don't know when we smashed the panic button on that. I feel like it's not yet because uh, there's there's still a lot of raw talent there. He's still an upgrade over last year's guy, uh, but it, it's something we're all noticing certainly more and more as each day goes on. And then the thing we'll watch for, uh, you know, Tuesdays when the pads come on, I think we're all waiting for a verdict on the linebackers. They've been running with two linebackers most of the time. I think we see that's what they're going to do this season. Uh, but when the pads come on, Ron alluded to it today, it, it's time to see can we count on Jamin Davis? Can we count on you know Phil, you know these guys right here, or is it time to go trade or, or sign or, or do what you need to do to bring in somebody else? So that that will probably be on on my radar tomorrow and into the rest of the week. I can't imagine that they will push any panic button on Carson Wentz until we see you know many games plural in the regular season. Yeah, 
Yeah. And, you know, this is going to be part of the strategy to win games is, uh, let me give you a hypothetical here. I think they need to go deep, like go long six or seven times a game. Easy. Um, go long. Maybe Terry catches it. Maybe Jahan catches it. Maybe you get a pass interference. Maybe it gets intercepted. But if, if you can have, you know, if you go, if you go long seven times, Kevin, sign me up for three touchdowns, two interceptions, two incompletions. Or, you know, three pass interference or touchdowns, two interceptions. Like, I think you're just going to have to take a ratio like that in order to run the kind of offense you want to run around here and be successful. Uh, the you know the key to that will be obviously being balanced, running the football, and by the way, the offensive line, which has been you know a reshuffled uh, deck every day, um, coming together and having time to be cohesive when the regular season starts. So, I did want to ask you about your column about RG three ten years ago. Um, first of all, the ten year anniversary made you think about it. I am sure, but. Let's go back 10 years to the, you know, the trade and then the drafting of, and then as they were getting ready for their first training camp and the excitement around it. Give me some of your memories of that first, uh, of that first camp with Griffin. Man, you know, it, there was just so much. Like, I'll even go back to the trade night. I mean, people were jazzed on the night of the trade when that trade got done. People were ready for this excited for this and that you know you had a, a coach in Mike Shanahan who had just been waiting for his guy and then you got this kid coming in who was you know so much hype through the process and you know he he was leaning into it socks and the press conferences um and the, and then to do what he did against the Saints like you know this this thing hit a fever pitch pretty quickly uh it, it didn't slow down from there all the way into you remember that next year's training camp down in Richmond oh, where it was crazy I mean there were just people on top of people on top of people. I, I mean, just people bought in all the way on this kid and, and what he was. I, I'll never forget Richmond more than anything else because it was in, you know, it, it was set up for that, those kinds of crowds. I mean, and, and those were the biggest crowds we ever saw in Richmond um, by far. And people were insanely excited. But that first camp 2012, I remember going to the first few days of that camp. I think we did our show, Tommy and I did our show from out there. And I, I'll never forget watching uh, some, some of the practice and seeing him lined up um, in the pistol, and I, I, I said to somebody, I can't remember who it was, that's the pistol formation. That's what Kaepernick ran at Utah State. Um, what are they doing? Like, and, and but it never occurred to me that they, we were going to see this, you know, total, totally new way of of playing offense in the NFL that they would debut against New Orleans. But um, yeah, it was crazy. And you know, you 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 alluded to something in your column, and I think you're spot on. I think that we now are ten years since and really 2013 and the build-up for 2013 so that would be nine years technically but those two years were maybe the last I mean you know uh, who knows what will happen in the future but it's been really a a steady and a pretty quick erosion of interest uh, since then you actually made the statement and I kind of agree with you other than the Gibbs return this was one of the highest points during the Snyder era in terms of excitement and you know like 
so as we assemble this, what the 90 greatest list here and, and build on the 80 greatest list, I, like, I totally get the people who are like, we need to put on more Joe Gibbs assistants, more guys from the 70s, whatever. Like, it's been a, it's been a bad decade. I get that. But you got fans, and I'm 37 years old, Kevin. So I was, I was six in 1991. Um, you know, and I, I didn't grow up out here. But, but for the fans out here who did grow up with it, I mean, we're, we're hitting on now a generation of people, people who have kids, who really have no tangible memories of anything resembling what are described as the glory year. And when you write the franchise history, you don't just exclude a 20-year chunk. I, I mean, he is, he is core to that story. He is the reason that, that people dipped into it for a little while and, and people got on board and, and people gave it that chance. And ultimately, the reason why, you know, it's so depressing right now, you know, 10 years removed from a high point that people will rightfully point out was not much of a high point and did not last for very long. So you think Griffin should and will be voted in the next 10 uh, on the, you know, the creating the 90 greatest in franchise history, don't you? Yeah, so I, I think there's six locks. I'll try to do them off the top of my head here. Kerrigan, uh, London Fletcher, Trent Williams, uh, Santana Moss, um, Co- D'Angelo Hall. Cooley. Uh, Co- Cooley. Um, I, think, I think those guys are, they, they, were, great, they were greater for longer than, than Griffin was and, and, you know, have ever in their spot there. But I think after that, like, if you're telling the 90-year story of this franchise, he gets a chapter. Um, and what he did, I mean, that game, that win against the Cowboys, that that late interception, the hail to the Redskins, I mean, I, I got goosebumps being there in that building. Like, that, that was a moment, and we just had so few of those. It's certainly relative to other places and what they get. Yeah, it's hard for me, uh, given that it's just one year, but you're right. I mean, it is one of the most memorable years, certainly of the last 30 um, in franchise history. You you might say it was the most memorable year start to finish. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you know, I, I, I'm going to drop a nugget here, and maybe you know this already, but a lot of the former players were among those that voted for this next 10 list of the players that fans would select from. Trent Williams was was supposed to be on that list. They pulled him off. They put him back on. Griffin was not. Um, so Griffin was not from former players uh, and those that voted on those that would be uh, available to be voted on for the next 10 was not one of those that made the cut, but they added him in with Trent after the fact because I think some fans and some younger fans said, you know, what about RG3? The, the Trent thing, we, we, you know, we've been through that. Um, we've covered that ground. But, um, yeah, what a year. Ten years, I, man. I, I, I get it, too. So, obviously, the column was very polarizing, and it knew it would be. I, if you – Especially if you're a former player, you know, and, and some of these guys who walk around who wear Super Bowl rings, if if they want to if they want to get on their platform and their radio show or whatever and say, you know, this this doesn't fit the criteria, this isn't it, I'll, I'll nod. Like I get it. Like you saw some serious highs. Like that was that wasn't what like that wasn't it. Um, I just you know, there's a full generation of people now though. That's the highest high they knew. 
and to them, that's the high point of the Washington Redskins um, because they, they weren't alive for the Super Bowl. So, and that, that's part of this franchise's story now is this last 20, 25 years. And I, obviously with Gibbs, had that lasted longer, that would have been a higher high. It was certainly lots of enthusiasm there. But in terms of a one-year, just this whole town pulling for it all at once, that's it. You just gave me an idea, by the way, for the perfect radio call-in segment for a slow day in August, and that is on this next 10 list. If you can only choose one, is it RG3's one year or Kirk's six franchise passing records that he owns? You know, because... Uh, because Kirk obviously has been a much better NFL quarterback um, in both plays, in, in, in everywhere he's gone than RG3 was. But, you know, the thing that's sickening every time we have this conversation, whether it's the two of us or, you know, pe- people that you talk to or people that I talk to, is that this was really, in so many ways, almost a last chance for Snyder to get it right. Like, he hired the right guy in Mike Shanahan. They had an incredible staff. Um, they had a young quarterback that, I, you know, I think in hindsight even, I don't know if Robert would ever, uh, you know, acknowledge this, that his best move would have been to say, no, Dan, I'm okay with Mike and Kyle and Matt LaFleur and, you know, and Sean McVay and everybody that's here. Uh, I'll take my chances with them rather than whatever new group you bring in. Um, it's It sucks because whether it was going to be Griffin at the helm or eventually Cousins at the helm, it would have been so much better had the owner not, you know, given a 23-year-old self, you know, absorbed quarterback, uh, you know, all of that preferential treatment and power. It, it just, it's, it's an outrage when you think about it. Not that we haven't b- b- done it before, but you bringing up 10 years ago makes me think about that was the chance for him to say, no, I'm not going to get in the middle of a player-coach relationship. I've, I've got to trust in you know, a, a potential Hall of Fame coach um, to, to make the right calls here. You know, and it colors the way the franchise has been seen ever since because they were, they were firmly on the national radar last year. And you, know, you go back to the argument, like, this is, I'm not coming at you with any stats here. This is purely a head versus heart argument. This is, I'm going hard with, with Robert here, putting him on the list. I'm, I'm aware the head is telling me that's a stupid thing to do. Uh, but, but yeah, you just everything lined up, and then it, it all collapsed just as quickly. And, and you had, I mean, the, the Dan thing colors so much all the way, I mean, from the Zorn hiring to the Robert thing to, just, just, you know, Dwayne. Um, it, it shows up every now and then and, and just sets this team back at the most inopportune time. Yeah, it's, it, you know, even if you are a believer that, uh, you know, well, I mean, he's not involved in the day-to-day, which we were, you know, to, told to, to believe for the last 10 years when Bruce was here. He got involved enough and continues to do it enough to really mess things up, um, and that's happened for – on and off for for 23 years, and that's why they are where they are. Um, Outrageous that Jacoby, by the way, was not included on that Hall of Fame senior list. That, that to me, is absurd. I don't know what the Hall voters – have against Jake, but my God, I thought I thought he would definitely make the next, you know, the finalist list at least on this senior committee thing. Well, that he's not a finalist is absurd. Of course, he, 
Is there any Dan factor at play there? I mean, is that like if they're still the Redskins and they have a competent owner? Like, is that a different story? I, I, I don't. It's unfair to to him, obviously. But like, when something that ridiculous happens, we're like, hey, look, when we get to the finalist list, I'm you know we're going to be debating between really good players. But to not be on the finalist list was a glaring omission at the least. Yeah, I, I, that's interesting. I haven't thought of it that way. I mean, you know, Shanahan made the next cut on the on the coaches contributors list, um, which I think he deserves. I think Marty should have been uh, made it to that uh, uh, stretch uh, that that spot as well. But um, I don't know. I think I think people um, understand that Jacoby never played for any of the Snyder owned teams. I, I just I don't get it. I don't get it on him at, at all. Um, it's uh, it's a major disconnect for me as to why he wasn't in either the the normal route and why on this particular um, you know uh, discussion he didn't make it easily uh, to the finalist list. It's a long gap now. We wait for Brian Mitchell's turn with the senior committee, and you know obviously with Devin Hester getting in, maybe that's a little bit of a different discussion now. Um, but it's 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 going to be a long wait from here. Like you know we. We did the we did the song and dance for Kerrigan, who was unquestionably you know one of one of the big faces around here. But you know, then you look at it from a national scale. Like, did Ryan Kerrigan retiring make any sort of national ripples? You know, and he's not obviously not going to be going to Canton. You know, just shows you like it's it's going to be a few minutes. Yeah, I think I think the Kerrigan Jacoby conversation is apples and oranges a little bit. Not just because Jake won so much um and Ryan didn't but Jake was considered the you know one of the best two or three players at his position for a decade Kerrig- oh, yeah. Kerrigan's yeah. never been considered no, no, that no I, I'm just saying even the best we've got to offer around here isn't enough to move the needle on oh, that, right, that right. committee got going it. forward like got I, it. yeah I, I'm just I'm just saying we're, we're about to go through a real spell of not watching that ceremony every year seeing any burgundy or goal exactly um, thank you for doing this as always. Hope you're well. Michael Phillips, everybody. Up next, Jimmy Patsos will be our guest. We'll talk Bill Russell uh, with Jimmy P. Right after these words from a few of our sponsors. Bill Russell played 21 winner-take-all games in his career. That includes the NBA, the NCAA tournament, the Olympics. His teams went 21-0. and 0. Ten of those were NBA Game 7s. And in those games, he averaged 29.3 rebounds per game and only missed seven out of 495 uh, total uh, minutes uh, joining us to talk about that. And I'm, I'm sure a lot more than that is my friend Jimmy Patsos. You can, of course, follow Jimmy on Twitter at Coach Patsos, doing a lot of work for Under Armour, NBC Sports Washington, and lots of other things. Um, I thought of you uh, among uh, several people. The first thought I had of was of was of Coach Thompson and having worked with him at the station for so many years and hearing him talk about Russell and our bullpen all the time and debate on you know the greatest centers and for him it wasn't a debate and to have him on the show. Um, and you were somebody else I thought about. I thought your perspective 
on Russell would be a good one as well. So tell me what you think of Bill Russell and his passing yesterday and your thoughts of his career and legacy. Well, clearly a very sad day for basketball just because he had the most rings as a player 11, which will probably never be. No one will catch him on that. But what a great human being. What a great example he led to so many. But you know what's really interesting, Kevin, is I knew Red Auerbach and I kind of chuckled. Very, very sad day. But the first thing I said was Sam Jones and Casey Jones were going for a loose ball. And Sam Jones got pushed into Bill Russell on the sideline. And Bill Russell has had his glasses on reading the Wall Street Journal. And the first thing <laughs> that Red Auerbach said was, what are you two doing messing with Bill? And they got up and said, hey, man, we're practicing today. He said, just you two Jones boys remember this. Remember, they were not related, but he called them. He called them. That was the kind of their name up there. Yeah. He said, "You two, Jones, you two Joneses, remember this. I don't need either one of you, but I need him." <laughs> and he said, "Bill, we're sorry we disturbed you because he's like the Wall Street Journal was crumpled and all that kind of stuff." But what struck me is a, he was so smart. But b, who was reading the Wall Street Journal in the '60s? Right? What NBA players were reading the Wall Street Journal? I don't know. But Bill Russell was. Okay, and Bill Russell was the first great player ever in my life in Boston that was a superstar, black guy in Boston, basketball player, super intellectual. My mother and father are talking about how he went to San Francisco, was a Jesuit. Like, he was just, that was the first guy in my life growing up in Boston that was just an unbelievable role model as my parents grew up in Boston. My father's Greek, my mother's Irish, you know, we're not. We're not black. We're living in a pretty white town. And they're like Bill Russell, San Francisco. Casey Jones played with them. There's Sam Jones. I just named three African-Americans that were, I was supposed to look up to in Boston. That's very rare, okay? I was born in 66. So you go down that path, and Bill Russell was the king of this because of his statesly, worldly, doing things with Muhammad Ali, winning all the time, then becoming the first black head coach. But this was a whole thing that I didn't realize was a total enigma in the rest of the world, Kevin. You know, I'm five, six, seven, eight, nine. I got to meet JoJo White, who also played at Kansas. Now, Dave Collins was on that team. Of course, Tommy Heinsohn and Bobby Cousy were on those teams. So it was a mix. But this was Bill Russell's team. It was Bill Russell and Red Auerbach. You got an African-American guy from the West Coast, and you got a Jewish GM. And it was talked about in my family, and that was a good thing. It was talked about as easier role models. This is how hard they worked. That's why they won. Now, we were, we were probably a rarity. Every, everybody was a hockey Bruins guy. We were basketball. The Red Sox weren't any good. Collie Strumsky was coming. The Patriots were unheard of. There's no Tom Brady at this time. My parents and my family, we idolized the Celtics, we idolized, and that meant idolizing Bill Russell. And then he was friends with Seth Sanders, and Seth Sanders became the coach at Harvard. You can ask Mike Jarvis. But this is what we grew up with. And not everybody grew up with a guy like Bill Russell, who was supposed to be a gentleman off the court, a winner on the court. As you said, 21 game sevens. We all talked about 55 rebounds he got in the game. But 21 and 0 in game sevens and two national titles at San Fran. Like that was, that was talked about because of the Irish Catholic of my mother. You know, San Francisco's a Jesuit school. Right. So think about all the crazy things I've just brought up in my first five minutes about Bill Russell, and it wasn't that he had 11 rings. And it was, it was all this other stuff 
combined. And it was very interesting to grow up around it. It was a pleasure meeting him. I got to talk to Red Auerbach. But you didn't realize that he's the one. And you know me. I do a lot of different stuff besides basketball when I was coaching. That's the thing. There's more to this than sports. This is a journey. But you also have to win. Let's not get it screwed up now. This guy wanted to win. I think he was competitive to the end. I think we saw the clips of him and Shaq and Michael and all those guys when he stood on stage, how to kick your ass. Like, this is a guy that was competitive and wanted to win. He wanted to make $1 more than Will Chamberlain. Like, all those things. But social justice, having the wherewithal to talk about racism while he had it, he didn't leave Boston. He tried to make Boston a better place, which was probably an uphill battle at the time, that's for sure. But yet coached. And then went back and stayed and coached in Boston. Then he went to Seattle and coached and did those. But he was around the game a lot. And I know a lot of people that know him really well that said he was true blue in his ideology to help players become better people. And while they were blessed, they have to give back. But there are changes that need to be made. And this guy, you're talking about way back in the 60s and 70s. I can't imagine how tough it was. That's my thoughts on Bill Russell. You know, you... um... You grew up in a city which has had the reputation, and you you just described it as you know being there for him as a black man and a basketball player. No matter how great, no matter how much he won for the Celtics, you know it was an uphill battle. You came from a very tolerant and open-minded um, family, and yet you probably grew up around a lot of families that weren't. Um, you know, we've read about the experiences that black athletes have had, you know, playing in Boston. And yet you mentioned Russell stayed there. He tried to make it work. How, how tough can you describe having, you know, grown up really as a child of the seventies, like I am, um, you know, uh, and by the way, you left, you left Hondo off the, uh, off the seventies team. Oh Um, yeah. Right. John Hamilton. Yeah. um, Yeah. But, uh, what was that? What was that uphill battle like? I mean, you probably have some thoughts and experience some of that. We remember busing. That was that was eight nine. That's when busing was going on. And you remember that? Yeah. You talked about, but you just you went to the games, and when you were Celtics fan, you went. By the way, it was about half full. Like we were young kids, you could just walk up and get tickets. There wasn't until Larry Bird, Dennis Johnson, and by the way, the guy that's going to credit for turning the Celtics, Tiny Archibald came. Right. Tiny Archibald was probably the most important player on the team. Then Bird. Then of course, Cedric Maxwell was good, and they had some other guys, but. Right. The black players that I knew in basketball, they didn't mind playing there because they they won and be the fans were really supportive. Jason Tatum, Al Horford's gone back there. Ray Allen leaves his kids there. Uh, Marcus Smart seems to be happy playing there. There's clearly something that draws guys to play in Boston when it's the fan base. They have tremendous schools. There's a huge African American intellectual property that's going on. Cornell, you know, my boy Cornell West. He's a professor at Harvard. You have Harvard. You have MIT. You have BU, BC. You have all these great schools. And the, the, the schools, the academia, that's why I said Sat Sanders and the guys at Harvard, the jazz clubs, and Mike Jarvis would give you a lot of this. There's a whole intellectual black community in Boston, and it's a very liberal place. I didn't say tolerant. Right. Because Salty and Charlestown and all that, the other time I went to school over there at PCI, it was like the great divide. So it's a really interesting place, and I think that's how guys like him got that to it. Like, I would never speak to those guys. I didn't know them like that. And JoJo White was in, I was in awe of JoJo White, you know, because he was such a big guard. He was my favorite player. Like, 
that kind of player when I was like a younger, when you could really understand the game. They just, that's where they chose to play. They won there. The fan base was good. But there was a lot of people that, that look, there's a whole other side to Boston. And I think Bill Russell embraced, if you read the Koozie book and you read about Bill Russell, he embraced the intellectual property that was happening in Boston. He embraced that there was a lot of really growth and forward thinkers on, the, you know, whether it's across the river in Cambridge. Well, at the same time, busing's going on, and clearly there's a race problem and Southie and Charlestown, and there's a few other towns over there that weren't so hot to be in, I would say, if you're an African-American or a Latin or a Jewish, by the way. That was one of the easiest things. This is a very Irish Catholic and a tough little town. This is where Whitey Bulger came from. But the Celtics brought everyone together. I just All I know is this is Bill Russell was able to bring that city together. Brett Auerbach talked about it. Now, they didn't come until the playoffs. They're winning all those champions. All those championships are being won. But then he becomes the coach. And then he sets the stage up, and then here comes, you know, Charlie Scott, that next year, that 74 and 76 they won, then the Bird Dynasty years with Dennis Johnson and those guys. But this is set up by Bill Russell's ability to win games. I mean, they just won. Like, in other words, I, I, the social justice stuff is so important. Him being an intellect, him making sure to talk to the other NBA players about their responsibility off the court to, to make changes in the world. But he was a winner. Like, he was still a baller, and he was a competitive guy. And, he wasn't the nicest guy on the court. You don't win. You don't go 21 and 0 in those games just because you know how to block shots and not knock them out of bounds. Because you're an unbelievable defensive rebound, it means your whole team's to one shot. He was a tremendous passer. Red Auerbach used Great to talk about plays with him at the him at the He's the Princeton offense of today with the big man at the high post. Right. He tried to tell me that Red Auerbach sat me down at Loyola and said, "I got a couple plays for you." I said, "There's only one problem. I don't have Bill Russell." <laughs> you know, like like, like he, and he talked yeah. about it. Him at the high post, he was the point center. But to be managing all that stuff and then still winning it in a place where there's as high a racial tension as there can be in the country in the north, I don't know anything about the south, but in the northeast, that was you know really serious stuff. Yet he brought the fans together. Yet the fans to this day still go to the Celtics games in droves. They pack them. They really pack them in in there. An interesting fan base. I think it goes back to not just the winning ways, the way they played, but the Red Auerbach, I think the Red Auerbach Bill Russell relationship needs to really be examined one day, whether it's a movie or a deeper book, because I think they both felt this isn't the easiest place, but it's what we got. They come here and they watch us play and they want to help us win, and we got it going here, and we'll figure a way to. Because remember, Red, wife and child, children, two daughters, lived in Washington. I know. Now it's a different time. He had to work a lot, travel, but I also think that might have been because they had a strong Jewish support community. So. Once again, I'm at Red's funeral, and there's David Stern next to me, and Silver, and Tatum, and all these guys. Well, Russell and all those guys are there in one corner, and you're looking at, like, this is the world we now think of as normal. It was not normal. It was anything but normal. But somehow they still managed to win. And I, and I also would like to go look, take a deeper look at Bill Russell's wins in San Francisco. To win back-to-back titles at the NCAA is still, like, one of the rare feats. You know, Duke did it once, but other than UCLA's run. And Florida did it, you know, with Billy Donovan and right. Noah and those guys. But this guy did it. And he did it, by the way, at San Francisco, a very small little school. So, like, that has to be examined of, like, his impact on winning, figuring out how to win, and then figuring out how to also be a good person off the court and make monumental strides. But let's not forget what a great player he was, Kevin. Like, a really, really great player. 
Yeah, let's talk about that because you're you're a basketball historian. I would I would describe you uh, among many things um, as a basketball historian, and there is no doubt he's the greatest team sport winner of all time. That's actually not even up for debate. You know, nobody's close to his you know eleven uh, titles uh, in Boston. I mean, Jordan had six, not eleven. He's the greatest winner, team sport winner of all time. Where does he rank on the all-time greatest center list? I'm putting him as one. Now, he would probably be a power forward today, but he was, let me say, he wasn't 6'7". He was a real 6'10". And as you know, he can play 6'10". You know, you can play center at 6'10". And in today's game, Draymond Green does at 6'8". Where does he really land? I put him as number one because I think he would have figured it out. Now, could he guard Shaq? I don't know. This guy guarded Will Chamberlain. He guarded Will. I met, I met I got. I met Will once. I've never seen a guy like that. I mean, he's seven foot one and a tree trunk of a body and great shape and moved well. This is when he was playing he was playing volleyball on the beach in L.A. of all time. When I met him, like he guarded Wilt, who was quick, fast, and big, and they were pretty dirty back in the day. Then so I think he could have held his own against like, like I said, Shaq's the only one to me that that's just a, and that's why I think the Lakers won so many titles. It wasn't just Kobe. Shaq was just unbelievably smart and could move, but he was huge. You know, nobody could match his physicality. But other than that, too, I think he could have, I mean, I, I got him on the starting five. I talked to my young, I'm 55, I'm out on the circuit. We have these meetings. It's hard to compare generations, but I put the 60s and 70s as one, 80s and 90s as the other, then the 2000s as the modern era. He's definitely the best player ever in the 60s and 70s. He clearly could have played against Kareem and them in the 80s and the 90s and all that stuff. Now, Lambeer might have tried to fight him or something, but Bill might have bit him back. But the 2000s, with the way they run and the way they shoot the ball, that's the only one I'm not sure you could put him in that category because the game was so different. But I don't know. Rudy Gobert changes the game. He's just not a good passer. He can still block shots. Like, there's ways to do it. And I think he would have figured it out. But I have him as first-team All-NBA ever just because of the 11 rings. You want to put him on the second team because of, you know, hey, you and people want to put him and Magic on the second team? I'll take that team. I'll take Magic at the point and him at the center on the second-best team in the history of L.A. The, the All-NBA team, I'll take those two and see who wins because you just had a great stat, 21-0 in Game 7. Well, 21-0 and in, in one-and-dones, including in college Olympics. 10-0 and 0 in all-time Game 7s where he averaged 29.3 rebounds. So, I, you know, Tommy and I on this podcast get into these arguments all the time. I mean, a few weeks ago, he tried to put uh, John Havlicek in, the, in <clears throat> Havlicek in the top 15 of all time. And I said, well, to do that, you're going to have to take some people out. And we went down the list, and eventually he had he had Hondo just, you know, at 20 or a little bit outside of it. And I said, that's more appropriate. But, you know... I watched so much Russell late yesterday afternoon last night. I, you know, like you, I'm, you were the same age basically, and I didn't see Russell play. I remember him side by side with Brent Musburger on CBS's, you know, call of of, of NBA basketball. But um, what was striking to me is how how athletic he was. 
And I, we always have these conversations about, you know, evolution, training, diet, everything. You know, LeBron, six, Jordan was 6'6 six, six and 195, 200. LeBron, 6'9 and 260. I always say Carl Malone is the one guy from the 80s that you could basically place in 2022 and he wouldn't look out of place because he was 6'9 and 260, you know, at that point. Um, but my God, I mean, he was a long jump guy. He was a high jump guy. He had long arms. He had great feel, great hands. He could run. There are so many plays that I was watching last night where he blocks the shot. And Red Arback used to say at you know St. John's Metropolitan Basketball Camp every summer, Morgan and Joe's camp every summer when he would come to speak when I was a kid. Bill Russell didn't just block the shot. He wanted to maintain possession after he blocked the shot. That was always a big hour back thing about Russell, and I'm sure you heard it a lot too. And then he would lead the fast break and make the pass. Like, I think I, uh, maybe I just never invested the kind of time I did last night into watching Russell, but I think he, I think you could place him. Maybe you're right. Maybe he's more of a Duncan, and as much as he's like a power forward, as much as he's a center. But my God, the the high IQ and the hands and the feel and the athleticism, unbelievable. And it it seems to me, after watching it, he could he's one of those few that might translate. You could bump up forty years, and he and he wouldn't look out of place. You know, well, you're, you, you, the athleticism part, you're right. And by the way, also that he could run and he could, like, outlet and run the fast break. I do like your Carl Malone thing because, once again, see, Carl Malone could shoot. He could face you up and shoot jumpers. Right. I don't know if Russell could do that. Duncan really couldn't do it, but it doesn't matter. And I don't Duncan gets enough credit, by the way. What's he have? Five titles? Duncan has five titles. Yep. You know, I mean, I, I think he won every one with them. I'm not sure if they won one without him. I don't think so. So you have. If you can pass and block shots and do all those things, you just change the game so much. That's one of the reasons I really like Chet Holgram, because he's a shot blocker, and he can run and do all that other stuff. Shooting threes, that's, that's a difference maker of the game today. Russell wasn't going to shoot threes. Duncan wasn't going to shoot threes. But you're right, Carl Malone could. People think of Larry Bird played against some white guy. Larry Bird was 6'9", and could shoot from 40 feet. <laughs> yeah, of course so. he could play today. Yeah. Of course he can play today because now he can't even guard. He can't pack and beat, and he can't clutch and grab like they used to. You know, Michael Cooper was all over him, Mark Aguirre, you know, Mark Mahorn. How would Russell have handled the defenses of those clutch and grab years in the 90s would have been interesting to me. Like I said, he's pretty dirty. You know, they had to change the rules because of the Pistons. God love him. And, and Jordan adapted because of them. You know, Jordan swears he got better because of the Pistons. Doesn't mean he likes them. But it seems to me that Hey, he beat Jerry West, he beat Chamberlain, he beat all these guys. It would have been nice to see if he could have went against Jabbar, because, you know, at the time, Lou Alcindor was turning into Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in Milwaukee. It would have been interesting to see him go against him. But after that, there's no dominant center again for a long time. So I have him second-team All-NBA. That means he's in the top ten. That's five to ten, Russell. Just because of the speed and difference of the game, is he the biggest winner ever? Of course, he changed the game the most. He put the game on the map. The Celtics and them were good for it. And I just think he could play today. He just might not play center. He might play. He might be a specialized foreman. But his winning percentage, and as you said, he was 6'10 and athletic. 
He was you know, much more finally, athletic than I really understood in terms of his ability to run the court, too. I mean, it, and you said it. They, they ran a lot of that that high post with him at the high post, a lot of the the cutting off of the high post. What a passer. Like, Walt, there, there, there are highlights where he looks a little bit like Walton as a passer. Yeah, who was considered the greatest pass, big, big man passer ever until he got hurt. That's David Halberstam. For those of you listening, read Greg's to the game. That's about the 78 season when they're about to go yeah. 55 and 10. Repeat, he gets hurt. Well, when you have a big man that can do all that stuff, like Lou Alcindor, like Bill Wall, certain guys, they're guys that can dominate from the post. Tim Duncan is the modern one. Well, I'm going to give you, he might be a lot like Tim Duncan. Like, And Duncan got his five titles. Okay, let's make no mistake. This, this is no this is no fluke because Ginobili's pretty good and Tony Parker's pretty good and David Robinson was at the end. Let's get serious. That was Tim Duncan's win. Those were, four of those five were basically his wins. And if he did it in this modern era, then why couldn't Bill Russell do it? I think I'm really glad you brought the Duncan thing. I think he could have been a lot like him. By the way, you know who benefited from the Walton injury as he was trying to repeat in 78, right? The Bullets. They won the title. The Bullets, right? You know, and they win the title in '78, and then Seattle in '79 beats them yeah. back. But they they played back to back, right? They played back to back. Seattle, though, you know, in '78, like Washington, you know, Washington beat Philly in the Eastern Conference Finals, and Seattle beat Portland in the Eastern Conference Finals, or, or in maybe in some round in the postseason, um, with Walton being hurt, and then Washington played Seattle back to back years. Yes. By the way, in the conversation of the centers. Like I understand that to me, and it makes sense that whether it's Kareem, Wilt, Russell, Russell, Wilt, Kareem, um, you know, Wilt, uh, you know, Russell, Kareem, whatever order you want to put them in. I think most people agree. They're the three best. You mentioned Shaq. I've always had Elijah one ranked ahead of Shaq. I think Elijah one, consistently in this conversation of the greatest centers of all time gets underrated. I'm not saying, you know, outrageously underrated because he's, you know, he's in a lot of top five lists of greatest centers. He's in a lot of top 10 to top 15 all-time players. Um, But I, Elijah Wan was uncheckable and then one of the greatest defensive centers of all time at the same time. Yeah, in today's game, Elijah Wan could switch and hold on, which would be nice. He could switch and guard guys to see. He had great footwork on great both footwork. defense. He got a little lucky, though. He, he didn't quite play the, <laughs> you know, Bert, he, he, his two championships were against the Knicks with John Starks. The league was a little bit in a weird place then. Well, Jordan was out. I, got done, yeah. I, I, got, <laughs> I kind of didn't want to say it that way, but. God rest his soul, David Stern would be like, just don't say the league wasn't good because Jordan wasn't there, but he wasn't. And they just, I really like Elijah Wong, but I got Duncan ahead of him. I got Kareem as the best ever just because of the sheer numbers. But Bill Russell's looking down at me and you saying, you guys are missing it. You two aren't listening, he's saying right now. <laughs> I, got a, I got 11 rings and nobody uh-huh. beat me. Nobody could beat me, including Will. Kareem had some good runs. But he got beat. Robert Parrish beat him at one time. Moses Malone beat him at one time. Right? Don't forget yeah, 83. I know. Right? And, 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 and Mo- I, Moses should be in the conversation, you know, after we get past. A different guy. 
for for a couple of years, he was unbelievable. But it took him a long time. But let's stay on track here. Moses beat You're the Lakers twice. Remember, beat him in the it, it, at, when they were the defending champs. When Magic came off the injury and came back for the postseason, when he was in Houston. Yeah, Moses also. Moses was good. He got to the finals in '81. That's when Bird yeah. said Moses eats shit. Bird, Bird couldn't help that one in '81. <laughs> My point is this: Bill Russell's up there saying right now, "You're not listening." We won. I was never defeated. Yeah. Like, I didn't lose my series. I played in those closeout games, as you said, 10-0 in Game 7. Like, when it mattered, we won. We won 11 titles. Like, that's it. I won two NCAA titles, and I won 11 titles. Yes, Kareem's probably second because, you know, Magic and them resurrect his career, which really helped him get a couple more titles. And he got some NCAA titles, I believe, three at NCAA. <laughs> yeah. That's second. Well, Wilt's a distant third to those two because he didn't he didn't win it as he know. didn't have the same supporting cast though. I mean, oh please, he had Jerry West in those because I don't want to hear that. Uh, yeah, I, I it's, it wasn't the you know seven Hall of Famers that were on the Celtics or or even the '80s Lakers and what they had. No, no, but I'm just saying, Wilt Wilt doesn't have the win. Moses doesn't have the win. Yeah, Duncan does. But Duncan couldn't get it done in college. I got to go. I'm off to South Carolina. God love Bill Russell and Red Auerbach. <laughs> but I'm saying Russell's looking down right now saying, see, you who aren't listening, I got the ring. All right. They don't. You got, and you, then I got Kareem. I got Kareem one and Wilson and Russell two. God right, love you. You, you got to go. I was, we'll save Kevin Durant for the next conversation. Uh, do, oh, do some. He's, 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 Kevin Durant's on Mount Rushmore of best supporting actors. Yeah. Morgan Freeman. I'm, I'm talking best about where he goes actor. next. I'm, I'm talking about where he goes next. I'm not talking about his, his, his placement on the all-time list. You're um, the greatest. Love right, you, Kevin. Love you. See you. I got to go. Bye. See you. Jimmy Patsos, uh, everybody. He is busy today. He's down at the University of South Carolina. Uh, they're an Under Armour school. He's got some meetings, but he was nice enough to jump on uh, and share some of those thoughts. I'm sure Tommy will have a thought or two uh, on Bill Russell uh, on tomorrow's show. All right, that is it for today. I will be back with Tommy tomorrow. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.